We start with Canada's nursing shortage on the show today. And tell you what, the shortage of nurses in Canada was bad even before COVID. But now with COVID hitting and the Omicron variant surging, it is putting additional strain on our healthcare system. Canada and British Columbia, we need more nurses in Canada. What about internationally trained nurses trying to get into Canada, trying to get into British Columbia to work, but getting stuck in all the bureaucracy, the red tape? Have a listen to this. This is foreign trained nurse Carla Dukasen talking to Global News here. Have a listen. It's just sad. Honestly, it's over and over everyday frustration that we are waiting for that piece of paper piece of documents so we can start practicing. Like Dacousine, a number of nurses trained outside of Canada have long since completed their requirements to work here. But immigration backlogs, now exacerbated by the pandemic, have held them back. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Emma Beaumont. Emma is a registered nurse. She was trained in the United States, and she would like to work right here in British Columbia. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Emma. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for this. And it's interesting to read about your case. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your training, Emma. Now, are you originally from British Columbia? Yep, I'm originally from Abbotsford, born Abbot- and raised. Right, right. Okay, but you did your training in the United States, Brigham, Young, Brigham Young University, right? Yes. Okay, yes. Tell, tell me about your training as a nurse there. Um, it was a wonderful educational opportunity. I think BYU is an incredible school. It's world-renowned. It has a fully accredited nursing program since 1957, actually. And so it was an educational opportunity. I simply couldn't pass up. And so it was kind of my dream school to go down to BYU. And so I just graduated in April of last year. Um, from a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing down there. And okay. then I, uh, I took the NCLEX licensing exam in June and got my Utah license um, at the end of June, moved back home to the Vancouver area with a desire to work, and it's been a long process as we've been waiting. Okay, so was that, the, was that the original plan that you would go down there to get your training and then come back home here and work as a nurse? Is that what you hope to do? Exactly, yep. Yeah. I always had the goal to come back to Canada. Okay, so what has happened since you've come home and you're trying to start working now? So as part of the process, if you've been internationally educated, so anywhere outside of Canada, if yeah. you're applying for your license within the province that you want to practice in, Anyone who's trying to do that has to go through something called the National Nursing Assessment Service, um, which just evaluates your credentials and makes sure that it's comparable to a Canadian education, which I think is very important because we want to make sure that our healthcare professionals are held to a certain standard and that we have the right credentials to practice in our healthcare system. Right. And okay. so, um, unfortunately, this process, um, any province in Canada or territory, any nurse has to go through this one national nursing assessment service. Yeah. And they say it can take a minimum of 12 weeks, but up to a year for them to assess all of your documents. Wow. 
So it's it's quite a bit of a wait. Um, and so as soon as I had finished my NCLEX licensing exam, which is the same licensing exam that Canadian nurses have to take and pass in order to practice in Canada, mm-hmm. sent in all of my documents. And so they had to actually mail all of the documents in. And it's quite wild because this assessment service is in Philadelphia, actually. And so we had to send all of these documents to Philadelphia. And so they were received August 5th. And so my 12-week mark would take me to November 5th. So it has now been a total of about five and a half months that I've been waiting since my application was sent in with no real further updates on the status of this application. Wow. And you'd think your application be a slam dunk. I mean, a big American university, highly respected program there, same quali- same standards and qualifications like you mentioned. I mean, you'd think, of, you know, it'd be like a very easy for them to approve this. Now, as you wait for that, as, as I understand it as well, after that one is, is done, Emma, then there's another step, right, that you have to Thanks. complete. Correct. So that's just the first step. And then you actually have to apply for your BC license, which they say can take up to an additional 10 weeks once that assessment is complete. So you're looking at a quite lengthy process before you can even walk into the hospitals to start. Okay, so this has been dragging on for months and months. I've talked to other nurses that their process has gone on even longer longer than mm-hmm. yours. So as you're waiting, now you already got a job offer, right? I did. Yes. I had been interviewing in April and May of last year because okay. I, I knew it would take a little bit of time to transfer my credentials. So I assumed it would probably be late August or September of this past year that I would start working. Yeah. So I had a job lined up at the Royal Columbian Hospital in New West. Yeah. And so I've been in touch with that manager and updating her on my case, and we've both been quite shocked at the length of time this has been taking. Oh, my my goodness. And here we are with the nursing shortage. I mean, they could use some help over there at Royal Columbian, I'm sure. Absolutely. I think it's been quite disheartening to have to sit on the sidelines knowing that even if I'm a new grad and my skills are not polished yet by any means but knowing that you have some skills and you're an able body that could help to relieve one of these burnt out nurses and yet you're forced to sit and be benched on the sidelines as we wait for a piece of paper giving us the AOK to start practicing. All right, Emma. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story this morning. I hope you get some good news on this very soon and that you start working at Royal Columbian Hospital because I know they need you badly. Uh, We've got a real bad nursing shortage here in British Columbia, and I hope you're able to pitch in and help out as soon as possible. Thanks a lot for sharing it today. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate this. All right. Welcome back to the show. You heard my conversation there with Emma Beaumont. Uh, She was trained as a nurse at a university in the United States, been trying for months now to start working in British Columbia. Just before I take a few of your calls, let's check in with Liberal MLA Mike DeYoung, who's going to bat for her here. Hey, Mike. Michael, good to be on the program. Thanks a lot for doing this. Mike, I know you're familiar with this case, and you've written a letter to the health minister about it. Tell me your thoughts on it. 
Well, your conversation with uh, Emma, I think, highlights the absurdity of the, the situation. We're, we're two years into a pandemic. We're hearing daily about the, the burnout and the, and the shortage of nurses. And governments and the government in B.C. still hasn't found a way to expedite the credentialing process so that nurses like Emma, who have written the same exams, who have a degree in nursing from a world-renowned uh, university... Uh, so that they they can go to work serving the patients and relieving overworked uh, nurses here in BC, and and it's absurd. Yeah, what have they done in other provinces, notably Ontario, Ontario on this? Yeah, so Ontario, and and I'll give you a sense of the uh, the order of magnitude uh, here, Michael. Last yeah. year, I'm advised that five thousand nurses made application in BC. Uh, in British Columbia, it was nearly 500. So there are almost 500 uh, nursing candidates who have written and passed the credentialing exams uh, and are waiting for approval. And in Ontario, they have said, look, um, because of the emergency we're facing, we are going to uh, allow those people to go to work. There will be a supervisory component. I don't think anyone uh, quarrels with that. But we are going to deploy those trained nurses while the credentialing process takes place. And why we wouldn't be doing that in BC uh, eludes me. I, I, it just seems like a, a reasonable and logical thing to do. Okay, you've asked the government to take a look at that. Have you received a response? Uh, not yet. And, and I'm going to say this as well, Michael, what, what occurs to me as I listen to, to someone like Emma Beaumont, your conversation with her, you know, governments and, and public health officials uh, have been, including here in BC, have been awfully quick to use emergency powers to tell people what they can't do, mm. right? They can't, can't go to the gym. They can't go to the restaurant. How about using those powers to facilitate something that people want to do and that we need, which yeah. is allowing qualified nurses to go to work. Okay, And I, the power exists. I think it's time for the government to use it. Thanks for your thoughts on it. We're following it closely. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Michael. All right. Liberal MLA Mike DeYoung there saying, let's get, these, uh, let's get these nurses to work here in British Columbia. Let's take a few of your phone calls now. Mike and Vernon. Hi, Mike. What do you think? Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Hi. I got a, just a real quick question for you, then I'll follow you. How many years have you been talking, or decades, have you been talking and reporting stories about nursing shortages in BC? A long time. It's been around a while. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. how do we get to this point? This isn't, I mean, I, I, I like what you're, what, um, oh, you, you lost, I can't remember his name, sorry, uh, yeah. had to say. But you know what? This falls on, on the success of governments over the years. This has been a problem that I remember talking here and people talk about in the 90s. So this this is yeah. something that every. This is the point. This is one of those things where political parties have to get together for the common good. Doesn't matter which groups it is, and everybody else. And let's just get this done. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Thank you for the call. And I, I think you. Thanks a lot. I think you raise a good point. I mean, we've had the liberals in power here in British Columbia in the past, and it was a similar problem too. But it's as bad as ever right now. So let's go. Let's speak to Avona in White Rock. Hi there. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I love your show. Thank you. I'm concerned that Emma has to send papers to the United States, to Philadelphia. What is that about? Yeah, that was why, weird. Why don't they have a place here in Canada for, for people to send their paperwork? 
Her yeah. papers are sitting on someone's desk because it comes from Canada, and they've probably got millions of people in the states that they're trying to go through their paperwork. I want to th- just- thank you, thank you for that point, and I, I think it's a good one. That jumped out at me as well. How weird! But man, you talk about bureaucracy and red tape. Now I can understand, like, okay, you've got to be careful. Maybe you're bringing in a nurse from some small developing country. You got to check out what their credentials and training are. I understand that, but. Man, when you've been trained to be a nurse at a huge American university with the same standards as ours, you'd think that would be basically a, a slam dunk and start working the next day. Lori in Mission. Hi, Lori. Got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm like your other viewers. Like, I just, I don't understand why we would allow Americans to decide the validity of an application to come and nurse in Canada. And I mean, the, the, I, and the other thing I don't stand, I'm old enough to remember when the medical profession nurses and doctors were leaving the country and they were going to work elsewhere because they weren't being paid properly. They weren't being appreciated. They couldn't get jobs. And I, and I really don't understand why we would be so arrogant to believe that if you went to university for years in another country, that you have received a substandard education and cannot be trusted to look after our sick people. All right, welcome back to the show. And here we go now with the scandal that is plaguing British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Partygate. Last week, Johnson's office apologized to Queen Elizabeth for hosting parties last year at 10 Downing Street. The party's going on despite covid restrictions in the united kingdom but even worse than that some of these parties apparently held the night before the funeral of queen elizabeth's husband prince philip calls now escalating for boris johnson to step down as the prime minister have a listen to this this is british labor mp emily thornberry talking to sky news i tell you what we're waiting for We're waiting for the Prime Minister to look into his heart and soul and decide whether or not he has a scrap of human decency in him. Because if he does, he will resign. How the hell can he possibly expect to go before Her Majesty again at a weekly audience and be able to look her in the eye and pretend that everything is all right? Because everything is not all right. All right. All right. Problems mounting for the British Prime Minister. Can Boris Johnson hang on here? Let's discuss now with my guest. We go live to London. My guest is Laura Hood, politics editor at The Conversation UK. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Laura. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. Wow, we're watching this story closely with Boris Johnson here. This is incredible. What has been the reaction among the British people to the revelation about these uh, these parties? Uh, it's been one of extreme and very visceral anger. Um, and I think, crucially, it shows little sign of abating. It, it, people have been angry with him in the past, but it feels like maybe he's running out of road this time. People are really angry because they are remembering the way that they were living back in um, the times that are under discussion here, and it's almost universally bleak. Um, We were two months into a national lockdown. We were severely limited in our movements. There are terrible tales being shared by members of the public about relatives dying alone, you know, people being separated from their families in moments of crisis. Um, And it's throwing up a lot of memories that people really have tried to forget. Yeah, what about the fact that it it appears that some of these parties were held the night before 
the funeral for Prince Philip, and, and people will remember those very vivid photographs of the Queen sitting all by herself at the funeral because of COVID restrictions. And yet then we find out, oh, there was, you know, this party hardy at the prime minister's office the night before. Has that made people even angrier? I think that image has been very, very powerful of the Queen looking so small and so alone at the funeral. And what we've known throughout the pandemic is that any story that suggests there's one rule for them and another for the rest of us has been particularly resonant. People in power making the rules, not abiding by their own rules. And and to see that the Queen herself was abiding by the rules really really makes one stand out as as, uh, being quite above himself. No kidding. Speaking to Laura Hood from The Conversation UK, she's in London right now. What? Uh, there's an, an investigation going on into these parties, right? Like, who's investigating this? Yeah, okay, so what's happening is there's there's a senior civil servant called Sue Gray who's investigating it, and she's due to publish her report probably this week. Um, if if not this week, then next. Um mm. And the the Prime Minister has been batting off all questions at this point by saying, let's wait for the report, let's wait for the report. So he himself is kind of building anticipation towards this report, which he may regret um, further down the line. It's not actually a formal inquiry, so we don't have a huge amount of hope of of getting a great big report that we can all rummage through. But we will probably see a summary, and I don't think the government can really get away with burying it at this stage. Now, she's not actually um, looking into... um, if rules were broken well she's she's what she's doing is basically gathering the facts on the ground she won't be deciding on if there'll be any punishment or anything so what she's doing is looking at who attended these events whether the people involved knew that they were attending something that wasn't a work event whether there's any evidence of johnson acknowledging that they weren't work events and and therefore sort of implicating some form of illegality um so while she can't actually sanction him, the concern is that the basic facts of the case will be so damning that the political damage will be too much for him to survive. His fear is that the, this will be the final straw for his party and that they will begin manoeuvres against him in earnest, rather than there being an actual sort of criminal investigation or something like that. Yeah, it really does feel like maybe the walls are closing in on him here a little bit, and we will wait what it says in this report. By I, I think that was a great point you raised that he's kind of raise the stakes here and people anticipating this report do you think this threatens his hold on the prime minister's office like we just played that clip of a labor mp and you expect a labor mp to be critical of a conservative prime minister but there's been some conservative mps speaking out against him too right you would, yeah. You would expect that from Labour, and they might also want to be a bit careful because, it, in some ways, it plays to their strengths to have him remaining in office and and, yeah. <laughs> and fading away. But yes, on on the other benches, um, you've definitely seen a massive change in tone over over this matter. There are huge rumblings. There are various people speaking out against him personally, but very many people being reluctant to support him. Um, It takes 54 of his own MPs to write letters of no confidence to something called the 1922 Committee, which is a bit of a secretive parliamentary body. Um, If 54 of them send these letters, then it automatically triggers a leadership election. We don't know how many have been sent. We do know that five have been sent. Um, We don't know if it's anywhere near 54, but things could really change when this report comes out and there may be a flurry of correspondence in that direction speaking to Laura Hood in London, England. Laura, let me ask you about another big story in the United Kingdom, and that is Prince Andrew and the scandal there. He has now been required to return his royal and his military titles to the Queen, no longer to be referred to as His Royal Highness. 
Uh, this after a court in the United States ruled that he must face a civil trial after uh, a woman accused him of, be- of sexually assaulting her two decades ago when she was a teenager. People may have seen the photos of the prince with this young woman, also the photo of him with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Let me play this clip here for you. Now, this is Prince Andrew talking about his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein in the famous interview he did with the BBC that seemed to do him more harm than good. Let's listen to this and I'll get your thoughts. In his Newsnight interview, Andrew said he rued the day he became involved with Epstein. And that's, that's, that's the bit that, 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 that um, as it were, I kick myself for on a daily basis because it was not something that was becoming of a member of the royal family. And we try and uphold the um, highest standards of, and practices and I let the side down. Simple as that. Two years on from that interview, Andrew, Duke of York, second son of the Queen, ninth in line to the British throne, stands alone. Okay, that report from BBC there, speaking to Laura Hood in London. So, Laura, wow, what a story this is. What's been the public reaction against uh, about these accusations against Andrew? And why did the Queen take these steps here to strip him of his uh, his royal privileges and duties there? Well, in, in all honesty, I don't think much of the public has reacted with shock over this. There's not a huge amount of warmth towards Andrew as a character, particularly not since that interview that we've just heard a clip of. And I would strongly recommend your listeners watch that interview in full because it is quite extraordinary. Um, in, in truth, he's been out of the public eye for some time now. So this is just the formal step. But I think what was surprising for a lot of people is just how brutal the um, the situation was last week. The Uh, Palace released a a statement that was just two sentences long, cutting him out of public life. Um, It was it was just a matter of words um, announcing that he'd be fighting this lawsuit as a private citizen. And I think a lot of people were perhaps a little surprised at how cutthroat that had appeared. Um, and how suddenly it had happened to him. Um, The message is very much that um, they've decided that they they need to distance from him as an institution and the royal family will no longer want to answer for his actions as an institution. They want to stop this from being a discussion about the monarchy or the future of the monarchy. Right, especially in a year when Queen Elizabeth will be celebrating the platinum jubilee right 70 years on the throne which is which is amazing and you've got andrew here now in a world of trouble um do you expect that he'll be forced to testify in court or he could probably settle out of court though right he could settle out of court it's very unclear whether or not his accuser virginia dufay would be willing to do that and i I think at this point it sort of rather seems like she'd rather this just came out all all came out in the open um so depositions are due in July, we believe, and, and it seems like Andrew will have to give some kind of evidence, but he can do that from the UK. And then if they settle out of court, he could avoid having to testify. It's very clear from his actions that he will be willing to go pretty far to avoid having to speak on the record about this. Last time he did it in that interview, it went very, very badly for him. And tra- the thought of doing it under oath will be very off-putting for him. Laura, we're following all these stories very closely. Lots going on in the news in the United Kingdom. Thank you for taking the time today to speak to us. Pleasure. Anytime. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk trucking now. There's lots going on with the BC trucking industry right now, including vaccination requirements now for cross-border truckers 
and dangerous conditions on the Coquihalla Highway. Let's check in with Dave Earl now, president of the BC Trucking Association. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Dave. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Let's start with the uh, the vaccine mandate. Can you explain how this is working now? Like, if you've got truckers who are going across the border, Canada-U.S. border now, you must be fully vaccinated. Is that correct? That is correct. So if yeah. you're a Canadian resident and you're going and you're returning to Canada, you can always return to Canada, but unless you're fully vaccinated, you're subject to a two-week quarantine pro, uh, process to go through. And that's new. Is that new from the previous rules? That is. Up to this yeah. point and all the way through the pandemic, uh, truck drivers have been exempt as an essential worker from the quarantine provisions. Okay. How will that impact the BC trucking sector, in your opinion? Well, Mike, what, what we know is, like every other you know, group of people, is that there are some people who just won't get vaccinated. That yeah. I'm lost. I don't get it. But you know what? They are who they are. And what that means is we're going to lose those people from the pool of drivers that are eligible to go back and forth across the international border. Uh, we've surveyed our members, both provincially and nationally, trying to get a handle on it. It looks like we're about the same as the general population, which is between 10 and 15 percent of people aren't vaccinated. So what that means is about 10 to 15 percent or about 800 to 1,000 drivers in B.C. are not going to be eligible to go to the United States. Wow. OK, so if you take up to a 1,000 truck drivers off the road, what does that do to the, the supply chain, which is already feeling the strain here? Yeah, that's going to make it harder. It's going to make it more expensive. Uh, anytime you take supply out of a supply and demand equation, the demand uh, is going to get met somehow, some way. Uh, so it's going to get more difficult to move goods north and south across the border. Okay, so are you opposed to the vaccine mandate then as an association? No, what we said to government, Mike, is, is and we've been very clear on this. When we talk about vaccines, that's the only way we're going to get out of this. Uh, what we have to be mindful of is everything that we do, and we know this, everything we've done for the past two years has caused harm, but it's prevented harm. And we really called on government to say, stop and take a close look at the harm you're preventing versus the harm you're causing. You know, so let's be thoughtful about this and take a look. And uh, they've decided to, to take this decision. So here we are. Okay, speaking of Dave Earl, he's the president of the BC Trucking Association. Let's talk about a couple of hairy weeks on the uh, the Coquihalla Highway. Dave, there's been there's been a lot of accidents on the Coke. Yeah, it's been a tough couple of weeks, and I and I don't know what to ascribe that to, Mike. Um, we are in constant contact with the ministry uh, in in terms of road maintenance, and they're in, in turn uh, in constant contact with their contractors. Um, there are standards to be met. There are service standards to be met. Now, to be sure, in the middle of winter, we are not going to be down to bare and wet all the time. Um, but there's been conditions that are just unacceptable. And the ministry is aware of it and has addressed it with the contractor. Um, you know, we expect to see better performance. We expect to see better conditions. Um, it, it's just been a bit disappointing. And I, I don't know if that's because of conditions, because of sickness with COVID, because of missed shifts. I just, I just don't have a good handle on it. But it hasn't been good, that's for sure. Okay, is the Coquihalla open right now? Commercial traffic, yes. And yeah. it is open in, in as much as uh, there are areas that are one lane in each direction. Yeah. Uh, but what we're finding, what our members are telling us, is taking them about 40% longer uh, to run than it would normally, which when you consider where we were two months ago, it's just, it's remarkable. We're just thrilled to have okay. it back to where we are. Okay, so the accidents that we've seen, 
is it due to truck drivers putting the hammer down, trying to get deliver that load on time, or you seem to be blaming it on poor poor maintenance of the road, like lack of snow removal? Is that right? Yeah, not not quite, Mike. I mean, it's a variety of factors on this. And I wish we could point to one, uh, but but as always, it's a variety of factors. Um, you know, drivers aren't driving to conditions. We still, to this day, which mystifies me, we still see people not chaining up when they're required to chain up. We still see equipment showing up in the mountain passes that has no business being there. Uh, we've got drivers that are driving too fast, and we've got road conditions that aren't ideal. Um, you know, you put that all together, and this is what we end up with. But to, to point the finger at one end and say, it's just equipment or it's just drivers or it's just road maintenance. Yeah, no, it, it's a combination of everything. And we've okay. got to do better on it all. Right. Okay, so it's a combo. And in terms of the, the road maintenance, um, I, I saw some photos on social media just over the last few days of truck drivers who were unhappy with the pace of snow removal on some parts of the highway. Is that all privately contracted out? Yeah, the ministry contracts all the snow removal in the province out. Uh, around the province in various districts and zones to uh, to private contractors. Yeah, and does the d- does it vary from region to region in the province about how well the work gets done? Like, are there some parts of the highway that are worse than others? No, well, the, the standards are uniform across the province, and they talk about different hours from ends of snow events. Um, you know, we have to keep in mind, particularly on the coke, um, when we're talking about snow coming down, you know, 10 or 15 you know, centimeters an hour, uh, nothing is going to keep up with that. There's, there's just no way. We can't have two or 300 pieces of equipment sitting idle for 360 days a year that we use for five days a year. Um, there's going to be periods of time where it's suboptimal conditions and we need to be equipped and be prepared to deal with that. The problem that we've seen is there's been too much of that. There's been too much where it hasn't been quickly removed enough. And uh, again, we, we talk to the ministry regularly and they work with the contractors to say, you know, hey, guys, we got we got to do a better job. We got to get it off more quickly. Speaking of Dave Earl, president of the B.C. Trucking Association. Hey, Dave, let me ask you about these new rules at the port of Vancouver uh, mm-hmm. meant, meant to address climate change. It's called the Rolling Truck Age Program kicks in on February 1st. So if I got this right, if you're driving a truck that is more than 10 years old, you will not be allowed to access the Port of Vancouver. Is that right? Sort of. Um, <laughs> this has been a process that's been in the place for years, Mike. I mean, the Port announced this program long before I joined the industry, eight or nine years ago. Um, and they've been working towards this and taking steps towards it. And the, re- the reason behind it is really simple. Newer technology pollutes less. And there's a long backstory into really poorly crafted and handled government regulation right across the continent. Uh, but what it comes down to is the port is trying to take a step and say, you know, let's go forward from here and be proactive and, and go this way. If you want to run a 1988 truck because it's a collector classic, you certainly can. Under this program, there's an exemption policy you can go through. And as long as your truck is emitting and running a powertrain that emits emissions just like a 2013 or newer vehicle, you're good to go. So it's not that you can't run old stuff, but you can't run old stuff that's not compliant with at least some level of emission control. Dave, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about divorce and separation law in British Columbia now. Is the divorce rate going up as a result of these stress and strains 
of COVID-19. Let's check in with Stuart Zuckerman now. He's an attorney at the Zuckerman Law Group. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Hey, Stuart, I've heard that the month of January is the busiest night at family law, uh, busiest month, that is, at family law firms after the stress and strains of the holidays, and then you combine that with COVID-19. Is that true? Like, does your phone start start ringing more often at Zuckerman Law Group in the month of January? Uh, yeah, I, I would say uh, after Christmas. I Even this year, I started getting messages on New Year's Eve and on New Year's Day uh, with people asking for consultations. I think a lot of people try to put off uh, the possibility of a breakup uh, during the holidays, especially if there's kids. And then a lot of people, when the new year comes, you know, they have kind of make a resolution that I'm not going to put up with this anymore and they want to move on. And uh, so traditionally for the 32 years that I've been practicing, January is usually a busier, busier month than the rest of the year in terms of new clients calling about divorce. Okay, and is that is that uh, holding true once again this year? Is the phone ringing more often right now? It, it is. In, in the last two years, we've seen about a, anywhere from 25 to 35% increase uh, over the prior years, over the pre-COVID years. So I, I, I found that speaking with a lot of people that uh, I think being cooped up in the same house with somebody because of COVID restrictions uh, added to the pressure with, you know, not being able to go out for dinner or entertainment, not being able to socialize with your friends, a lot of people working from home, not socializing with their coworkers. Um, all those outlets uh, have been shut down and uh, people are uh, confined to the same space. You know, if you have cracks in your relationship, that's going to be magnified and exposed uh, when you're under the stress and anxiety of being locked up together. So right. that has added to the uh, to the pressures, and it's definitely a factor that's that's resulted in an increase in um, in separations and divorce. That that combined with the increase in property values, uh, particularly uh, in the lower mainland and Fraser Valley, that, that's had a pretty huge impact um, on uh, separation and divorce as well. Oh, really? Oh, why is that? Is that what, there's more money to, to fight over, I guess? That, that's exactly uh, yeah. the situation. You've had, you know, 25 to 40% uh, increases in property values over the past two years, depending on what area you're in. And, um, I mean, I had a case that was ready to go to trial uh, right at the beginning of COVID. I think the trial was set for April of 2019, we had an appraisal, or sorry, April of 2020. We had an appraisal on hand that was from late 2019 that valued the house at uh, 1.7 million. COVID hit, the trial was adjourned. Um, and of course, that's happened in a lot of cases. There are adjournments and delays in the court system because the court shut down for several months. Um, and, uh, and then after the shutdown, we ended up getting a new appraisal. Uh, this past August, the property had gone up to 2.3 million from 1.7 million that's a 600,000 increase so that's 300,000 each that that each uh, of the spouses are presumptively entitled to because they're each entitled to a 50% share of the increase in equity from the date of cohabitation forward so there's a lot more to fight over and in that case we went to mediation in August settled uh, with a valuation of 2.3 million the home was listed for sale and sold in September of this year uh, for 2.7 million, we had to go back and fight to reopen the the deal we made uh, to get our client uh, her half of the increase because the property went for much more than either party anticipated. 
Wow, wow, that's amazing. I'm speaking to Stuart Zuckerman. He's an attorney with the Zuckerman Law Group. We're talking about divorce and separation in BC. So is it safe to say that the divorce rate is going up right now? That's my understanding. I I have not seen the statistics from the uh, BC uh, Supreme Court system that, that gives the annual number of people who have applied, but I have seen anecdotally... Uh, from across Canada, that there have been registries reporting increased in uh, increases in numbers of people applying for divorce, and then I am also aware from international news that um, in Hong Kong, uh, in uh, Australia, um, in a number of places, the divorce rate has increased. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't know that it's increased as great as I've seen in my practice. That thirty percent increase that I've seen in my business, but. Uh, I'm uh, I'm certainly hearing that it's increased a number of uh, percentage points uh, from pre-COVID to right. post-COVID. What is that? I guess traditionally the the divorce rate over time. I've always heard that was around what fifty percent. Around half of marriages don't work out. Well, is that about yeah, right? It, in BC, it's been about forty percent, thirty-nine to forty percent. Okay, uh, and and that's just what that is is a comparison of the number of applications for marriage certificates or for marriage uh, licenses as compared to the number of applications for divorces uh, being granted. So that's how that's being measured. And of course, you know, that statistic doesn't include the number of common law couples separating, which is just as, you know, I have just as many common law couples separating as I do divorce parties. Right. Okay. You anticipated another question I had for you there. And that is, what if you're, what if you're not married? What if you are living, living common law? Do the same laws apply to separation? Yeah, once you live together for two years or more, you're considered common law spouses. And then from that point onwards, all of the laws that apply to married couples about property division, debt division, spousal support, those are all the same. And also, if you're common law and you have a child, uh, then the laws about spousal support and uh, uh, child support are all the same. Although for property division to kick in, you need to be together two years or more. Right. What if you've been together less than two years? Like, what if you've been together 23 months and then you, then you split up? What happens then? So, so if there's no children, you're not considered a common law spouse. You each uh-huh. walk away with whatever you own in your name. And there's no presumption that either one of you have a right to the uh, equity in the assets that are owned in the name of the other party. Okay, when someone calls you and they're in trouble, they think they're heading for their divorce or relationships breaking up, do you do most people i mean that you must go you must have seen some horror stories and some difficult times I mean, the worst times in people's lives in a lot of cases what they're going through i mean do you um do you often urge people like look how about if we can go into some mediation instead of like duking it out in court yeah well for, first of all every divorce lawyer across canada has a duty under the divorce act to inform uh, people who are inquiring about divorce uh, about the existence of marriage counselors and to consider counseling before considering divorce. Mm. So we do that whether it's a a common law person or a married person. And then secondly, I absolutely uh, do encourage people to do mediation or collaborative divorce or mediation and arbitration. I'm actually, uh, since the pandemic has said, I have done a ton of mediations over Zoom uh, with, you know, uh, one party might come to my office or be at, at their own home uh, meeting with me over Zoom and the other parties with their lawyer or uh, same thing at home. And then the mediator 
comes on and we all basically meet over Zoom and we can go into separate Zoom rooms and uh, negotiate. And I've worked out a great number of cases without going to court um, through, uh, through mediation. So okay. it is a very good approach. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking divorce and separation law in British Columbia with Stuart Zuckerman, Zuckerman Law Group. Lots of calls here. Let's go right to them. Pete on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Pete, go ahead. Hi, um, I'm wondering what you think about, uh, given that the B.C. government refuses to train people in school how to deal with emotional and communication skills and problem solving, what do you think about requiring uh, anyone to get a marriage license to take a course in communication skills, dealing with your emotions in a healthy way, and, and problem solving. I know at one point in time, many, many, many years ago, the Catholic Church required that before you could get, or something like that before you could get married. It would reduce yeah. the divorce rate and make it more civilized if you did get divorced. What Stuart, do you think? Wait, Stuart, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's, it's not a bad idea. Of course, a lot of people say they don't want government interfering in um, private yeah. matters like uh, marriage, but uh, there's no question that overall in our society, not enough people are educated on how to deal with conflict, how to deal with disagreement with your spouse. I tell a lot of people in their first consultation with me when they're not certain that that divorce is the answer, but that's what they're thinking, to look up the phrase active listening in Google and read up on active listening. It's We use it as a negotiating technique, and it's basically uh, a method of making sure that you hear each other when you're having arguments. So before you give your defense and your response to whatever your spouse has said to you, uh, you would you would first feed back or repeat back to your spouse what you think you've heard them complain about. So, you know, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're upset about the fact that I left the dishes in the sink again and you've told me before not to do that, and you're upset about the fact that I didn't do this thing that I'm procrastinating. Is that right? Have I got that right? And when the person hears their concern reflected back to them, very often... In mediation, for example, you'll hear, you'll hear us both kind of go, oh, like breathing a sigh of relief. He heard me. He finally heard me or she heard me. I haven't yeah. been heard up to now. So the active listening can be a big part of just uh, communicating with each other and hearing each other that can help you get past some of your problems rather than escalating. If you just defend yourself and you don't assure the person that you heard them, then they just feel like you're plugging your ears and you're not listening to the problem. Okay, that's really interesting. I think it sounds like great advice, actually. Let's go to Bill on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Bill, go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I just had a simple question. Like, what happens during uh, the pension, like your pensions that you've accrued either through the government or the union uh, after divorce? And mainly, if, uh, like, for instance, if I were to die before I could collect my pension, does she would still get it, or does that just go into limbo, or can she or he bequeath that? to another family member or friend mm. or whatever. Stuart. Um, well, I know that uh, upon separation or divorce, each spouse is entitled to 50% of the pension benefits that have accrued or the pension credits that have accrued to the other, and that includes private pensions, CPP, uh, etc. So um, uh, those benefits up from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation are split 50-50. I'm not 100% certain that when uh, there's a death prior to separation, uh, I mean, I, th- those are usually covered by terms of the pension plan itself. There's usually a death benefit that goes to the surviving spouse. 
Um, and depending on your pension benefits, it may be for a period of five years after their death or 10 years or more, uh, or there may be a lump sum that's paid out. Um, but uh, in terms of leaving it to somebody else, uh, it, you can't do that if you've separated because you can leave your share of the pension to somebody else perhaps, but not your spouse's share. Okay, that's an interest, another interesting question for sure. Let's go uh, back to the phone lines. Anne on the line in Surrey. Hi, Anne, go ahead. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, a question regarding two people cohabiting, and they've been cohabiting for more than two years, so they're legally married. But what if one of those people in that relationship is already married to somebody else and has been not living with that other person for four years? Is this person a bigamist? Uh, well, if if you're talking, you, your question was initially premised on people living together. If you're living together for more than two years, you're not legally married. You're simply referred to as common-law spouses. So if you're married to your first spouse, then you separate, and then you live with somebody else uh, for more than two years, um, that, that somebody else, that new spouse, has all the rights of a spouse under the Family Law Act. On the other hand, if you're married to somebody you separate from them, and then you marry somebody else without first obtaining a, a divorce order from your first marriage, then yes, you are a bigamist because you're married to more than one person. And the argument would be that the second marriage is uh, a void or voidable marriage because it was not legally entered into because you did not have the proper status. You weren't single or divorced when you married them. You were already married. Um, and that may invalidate the divorce and qualify for a um uh, having the marriage declared uh, null and void. Let's try and in effect. Squeeze in one more. Nora, go quickly, though, please, because we're almost out of time. Okay, go ahead. Hi, Stuart. I, I have a question in regards to um, separating of assets. Yes. Um, so I've been uh, in a common law relationship for 10 years. Uh, my partner inherited a house 12 years ago, and now it's fully paid out. Um, since the beginning of pandemic, he lost his job, and for the past years, I've been supporting him. Um, I do work from home, and he doesn't work, so we do have a lot of arguments. Um, and every time we have an argument, he brings the point that because I didn't okay, what, what's, in the house, what's, what's your question? What's, to me. Nora, what's your question? Because we're almost out of time. Uh, my question is, uh, it, do, do I have any rights to the house or not? 30 seconds, Stuart. Go ahead. Yeah. So as, as a common-law spouse, your, your spouse is wrong to say that you don't have any rights to the house because it's in his name. He, he has the entitlement to whatever the equity was when he inherited it and whatever it was worth on the date of cohabitation. But in the 10 years since you've been together, the growth in equity, regardless of who paid the bills, that growth in equity is subject to a 50-50 split. There's okay. a presumption that you're entitled to half.